0: Welcome to Hirwaith, the home of modern Welsh politics. As Westminster and the Senate are now in recess for the summer, we are taking this opportunity to answer some of your questions. So, uh, with me on the part of this evening, we have Richard Mine. Hello, Richard. Hello. And we have Kerry Davis. Hello, Kerry. Da, boys. Nanda. So we'll start off with a listener question. Rich, as we go into the summer, which national government is in the best shape? If you look at the situation
1: across the United Kingdom right now which government is succeeding politically at the moment or which government's political project is clearly in the ascendancy I would have to say the only one that comes to mind is the Welsh Government. They have been bolstered by a very strong election support and I think uh, you look at the comparative and everything is comparative, everything is relative, the comparative swagger with which they are proceeding with their program for government. And I think that they are looking in a really good position. In Westminster, it seems to me, and I'd be curious to know what you think about this, Matt, it seems to me that we have already crossed the point at which the UK government has started to lose its credibility with the public. But we we haven't hit the point at which that is showing in the polls yet. But I think when we look back Historically, the start of this year will be the time when Boris, you know, the, it's clear that public trust in the Johnson administration uh, started to erode.
0: So what do you think? I really don't have much to say on this. I don't, I, I, I don't really understand the question. Three governments are in very comfortable situations. If there was an election tomorrow, all three would be re-elected. I, I really, do, I really don't think there's any any danger for any of them. They're all doing, in political terms, which is their ability to win elections, all doing absolutely fine. Their ability to govern, as is as you've mentioned with regards to the UK government, yeah, perhaps that is in question. In real political terms, they'd both they'd all be absolutely fine tomorrow. I'm just going to I'm just going to come in on that and concur with Matt completely.
2: It's exactly what I was going to say. You've got Wales Labour sitting pretty. Just got one of the best election results. SNP, Scotland, building towards that kind of second referendum. And although, you know, the news is full of what's going wrong in Westminster, they, they, they are sitting pretty. The polls are still showing that they would win if they had another election. And where we are at the summer,
0: all three administrations are sitting pretty. So you, you talk about Scotland there, Rich. Do you, do you agree with uh, with... Liz Truss and Douglas Ross when uh, they say that the Conservatives are going to win the next Holyrood election?
1: <laughs> I mean, the, the chance of me agreeing with either of those two people on anything at the best of times is pretty slim. The idea that this, the Conservatives are going to win any more seats than they have now uh, in any future election in Scotland just seems... Uh, utterly bonkers you're quite right that those three the three governments in the three nations on britain would all win tomorrow but what about trajectories though i mean i just i i I just that there is a sort of sense of the project starting the wheel starting to come off the bus made out of an old wine crate Uh, If I can dig into the Johnson back catalogue of terrible press gaffes, you know, in a year's time when we join the dots backwards, I think that there's just something you can just see the way that the various fights that the UK government has picked right now are starting to leave. You know, the Teflon has worn off. And, you know, it's been in the oven too many times. And now you've got those ghosts of meals past baked onto it. And there's like a Hancock shape burnt onto the plate. There's uh, the singe on the end where they've lost the flame war with the English football team. It's absolutely starting to take the sheen off them. However, ultimately, politically, 100% correct. There is not a strong opposition in Westminster. So they would win in England again tomorrow, but um, but yes, I think you're, you're launched. Yeah, I agree with you. I Hate agreeing completely
2: with my uh, colleagues all the time because uh, it's not great radio. But um... <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'll throw you I'll throw you both a curveball at the end because you both you both recently did a, a pod about Northern Ireland and we do have listeners in Northern Ireland. So either of you got a take on that particular administration where we are in Northern Ireland? You want to put out?
0: I mean, I'd be shocked if it goes the distance till next year. And I think that when that election does happen, I think you were very likely to see the first ever Sinn Féin first minister of Northern Ireland. I, I think that's the general tra- trajectory. Um, we were talking we, about we, We've Leahy. been talking about no
2: change in any of the rest part of... And you just dropped that one in at the last. That is that is really big kind of thing to say. How have we talked... So- about Scotland, England and Wales and said, no, nothing's happening for so long. And then Northern Ireland, you come up with that. Tell us a little bit more about that, Matt.
0: If you look at uh, all the unionist support, so for a very long time, as long as I can really recall anyway, the DUP have been the largest party and the Assembly has had a unionist majority. In the last uh, Assembly election, they lost that unionist majority, but the DUP was still by one seat the largest party. Now, as you see unionist support fracture uh, with lots of people starting to say they'll support traditional unionist voice which is an even more right wing unionist party and a few people going back to uh, the UUP the more moderate unionist party you actually see a point where like Thomas was saying to us last week where in some polls the DUP are joint third, joint second, joint third with the alliance party. There's no guarantee although it's very likely with transfers etc. that they would end up as the, the the second part, the, the second party at least. Yeah, I think it's inevitable, really, that you'll have Sinn Féin as the as the largest party, especially if the polls hang course as they are doing right now. I, I, I don't see any other result, really, unless, because of the way their SDV system works, smaller unionist parties get eliminated and the DUP win uh, uh, enough support to be the largest party again, or the polls tighten because of the squeeze when unionist voters decide they're going to back the DUP to stop Sinn Féin winning. But otherwise, I think it's it's pretty inevitable. Would you agree, Rich?
1: 100%. Uh, I think we're, all of the drama around Northern Ireland of recent has been to do with the UK government's mishandling of Brexit and the negotiations about the Northern Ireland seaboard or the Brexit border in the Irish Sea. I hate to be uh, not positive about the future of Northern Ireland. but. I think we're, we're on the cusp of a very, very, very difficult time. If, if the situation that Matt paints a picture of there does come true, and we do see a nationalist First Minister, the safety that the unionist community has always felt um, will start to evaporate, um, and they will react to the sensation that Northern Ireland is drifting towards unification. It's not beyond possibility that you could have a, a Sinn Féin government both north and south of the border. And, you know, it's not like they will be shy about putting forward a reunification agenda. And then you'll see, instead of the kind of political fireworks, you might actually see real fireworks once again. And I think that's something we all need to be prepared for. And also, our it's incredibly difficult to even think about this, but you would really hope that the grown-ups start behaving like grown-ups in Westminster um, and start deal with the reality of the situation on the ground instead of prodding the fire um, with their ridiculous um, agenda with regards to undoing the protocol that they signed just a couple of years ago.
0: If you want to hear more on that of course please go back and listen to our wonderful episode with Thomas Leahy, who's very interesting uh, about about Northern Ireland. Kerry, I think you had a question. Brexit is key to all of this and we, we just t- Rich
2: just touched on about uh, there, so where, where are we with Brexit in Northern Ireland? I know you two follow this quite closely. How is Brexit looking for you two, both Northern Ireland, but also the stories in the papers this week about uh, the the shells being empty and things like that? What, where's Brexit for you now?
0: Go on, Matt.
1: You've been uh, you've been glued to the parliamentary committees.
0: Uh, Brexit is becoming a, a very noticeable problem. The trade issues. And I think that if you had a party that was in opposition in Westminster, who was able to draw attention to these issues, then I think there may be some political capital in it. Um, But it does appear as though the UK Labour Party have decided to um, accept Brexit as as done, which it is, really. Obviously, not the consequences of it, we'll live with those for a very long time. But... I think they don't really want to make a big deal about Brexit because if they do, then the Conservative Party can send out targeted ads to all the quote-unquote red wall constituencies saying, look at the Labour Party, still not over Brexit. And I think that they are sort of paralysed by the fear of that happening, so they don't really want to bring it up too much. Similar to what happened with Jeremy Corbyn when we didn't really have a massive, uh, massively clear policy on Brexit, we just sort of avoided it because it was difficult. And I think that's probably what... <laughs> the UK Labour Party will do again until until it becomes uh, such a big political issue that it's unavoidable. But even then, the Conservatives will just say, well, you back this deal.
2: Keir Starmer isn't really, you know, making a huge position in
0: opposition on any of the big-ticket items. Is that the reason with Brexit? Considering the Labour Party's position on Brexit is because we lost so badly in 2019, and one of the major factors behind that was because people wanted to get Brexit done. In, in a lot of our constituencies, they vote for the Conservative Party to do that. So that I think is a, is a major reason. I think that Keir believes that the best way to, one of the best ways to reconnect with the former Labour voters who voted Conservative in 2019 is just to accept the fact that Brexit is done. With regards to Keir's overall performance, I mean, me and Rich have talked about this a bit, but you think he's doing better. Um, he has been ever so slightly better, I think, at PMQs. But, you know, William Hague used to win PMQs all the time. And you see what that happened with him in a general election. So, a slightly better PMQs does not have a prime minister in waiting make. Um, <laughs> if you look at the state of the party overall, uh, well highlighted this week, the financial difficulties that the party is in, they're behind in the polls, they lack a persuasive narrative that seems to be connecting with large groups of people this is all before of course the boundary changes come in which will take away a huge amount of inbuilt labor advantage in in westminster elections at the minute it looks like if they win the next general election it will be as a consequence of conservative mistakes rather than any labor inspiration at a westminster level and I, 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 even if that happens, I still think it's a it's a big, long shot for, for Labour to win the next election. I just don't think Keir is really connecting with people. I think that... Um, I heard I heard a very interesting argument, one that I'm not massively sure I agree with particularly, but it, it's an interesting line to put forward, which is under Keir Stammer, Labour have the complete opposite problem that they had under Jeremy Corbyn, which is under Corbyn, They had huge cut-through, people just weren't overly keen on what they heard. But under Kia, they have no cut-through at all. And I'm not sure if that's accurate, but I think it's at least an interesting argument to put forward. And I think people just aren't listening. I I think it's dreadfully hard during a pandemic anyway to get people to listen to you, because the only politics they really want to listen to is the Prime Minister deciding whether you can go to the pub with your mates or not. There are so many things Kia could talk about. He was very good, I thought, and when England were doing well in the football to, to garner a sense of national pride in in England, I just I just feel like the the, the cut through isn't there. And the only thing he's done this week was criticise the UK government for their three percent pay rise, even though the Welsh Labour government have agreed to do the exact same thing. Yeah, I, I wonder with, with Keir Starmer,
1: you know, what is what is the ceiling for success for Keir Starmer, and I. What the Labour Party sees as success is winning elections, and everything else is not success. Yep. A part part of me just thinks the point with Starmer is he's a night watchman from a in the cricketing sense. His his job, his success for the Keir Starmer administration would be to stop the rot and. To keep the the ship relatively steady so that the more interesting exciting batsmen can come on and hopefully score some runs the following day and i think you, you talk about him in the context of uh, william haig and i think he's very i think he's very similar you know he, i mean he's obviously less interesting uh, less funny but i do think he is starting to his new team that have been in post for a few weeks now have started to give him the tools and maybe just let him take a few more risks in terms of things. And I think, you know, the, the Starmer who took over uh, the Labour Party would not have stooped so low as to use a cheap political line like the Johnson variant to talk about a variant of the, the COVID um, virus, because it is, it is a bit cheap, but that's the kind of thing that sticks, see in dictionary Captain Hindsight, which is infantile, puerile, but it, it cuts through. I do not think we have more than a one in a million chance of seeing Prime Minister Keir Starmer. I just don't think it's going to happen. But if he can, you know, arrest the decline of the Labour Party in England and maybe try and start planting the seeds of what will come next, I think there's a possibility, you know, that, that people could look back on his reign as the Labour leader with you know, as 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 the kind of beginnings, like the the green shoots. But I I just don't think it's going to be more than that. Like you say, there's just structural problems as well as political problems. There's just structural problems until either the ruling party in England completely collapses and does something stupid, which is always possible. The thing that I'm missing with the Labour Party right now is the, is the supporting cast. I mean, you know, we talk about Keir Starmer being anonymous, but who are the supporting cast of frontbenchers in the Labour? party in london at the moment i mean they're anonymous and whether that's by design or by accident it's just not going to work if you if you can't even i mean all of the focus groups so listen you know as as, I, as you do matt i know to um the focus groups that um matt surely does for the times red box and they can barely name keir starmer who is the leader of the labor party in england what chance do they have of naming Rachel Reeves or Nick Thomas Simmons or these various people that just have zero
0: public profile and you can't win an election like that, you just can't No, William Hague in 2001 had a seat total seat gain of one so, you know, I hope he does better than that I think the hope for a lot of people is he's more of a kinnock is that he gets Labour back to a position where we could win an election rather than necessarily actually winning one the johnson variant i i i I had to look this up because i thought it was interesting is a what amanda ianucci thought of the johnson variant obviously everyone who knows amanda ianucci the uh, writer of the the thick of it among many other things but he said i see what you're getting at calling it the johnson variant but it sounds cheap trump light and childish and i i sort of agree with him to be honest the best bit of political comms they've done in the last few weeks was when the Conservative MP uh, Lee Anderson said he was not going to watch any of the England games. And they found out that he was born in 1967. So they said that obviously the last time England won an international tournament was 1966. And they said that, well, we think that he's been the jinx all along. So we ask him to stop watching the game until the final. And that, that's the best political comms they've done, I think in the last few weeks, but everything else, is just a bit same old, same old, you know? you know starmer
1: can't be any someone that he isn't
0: you know he is a
1: slightly boring middle-aged middle-class dad if the labor party wanted someone who was going to electrify the public discourse in the uk they would have elected somebody else you know he is not the man for that think of him as a kinnock but the thing that kinnock had was oratory And Starmer doesn't have that in any way, shape or form. When it came for Kinnock to, you know, kind of fight those internal battles publicly, he could do it in a way that he could bring people with him. And that's, at the end of the day, that's what Starmer lacks more than anything else in the world, which is there are people that back him because they back, they know he's a generally good person, generally good um, centre-left compass that most people in the Labour Party will like he's not going to bring people to the labor party because he's just not that person but then you look around him and you think well who 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 is going to fulfill that role and like i said i mean there's no one else on the front bench that can do that either and you look back i was looking back because of all the the stuff that's come out about the 1997 records being released i was looking back at some old videos of tony blair um speaking now there is a person who history is not treating kindly But you look back at the way that he spoke not only to his party members but also to the wider public in the run-up to 1997 and he really sold his vision of the future Um, and he had gordon brown he had john prescott robin cook he had all these people that had their constituencies that could bring voters with them if i was you know in the Labour party now you'd be looking at the plp and seeing where are those people who have a genuine vision for the future who can really sell that vision it's just a bit dull and managerial which works in wales when you you know you're in government and you've got 20 years of history and you can you know you can um rely on your electoral machine to get the voters out for you um, you can be a little bit dull but you're going to be locked into opposition for years unless you can find a way of really exciting the electorate I, just, I don't think anyone genuinely believes he's going
0: to win an election. So, so why why would why would people be disappointed that he isn't? Well, all right, uh, Kerry. What is your opinion on the Labour leader? The Labour leader. <laughs> so could they named him twice. No, I was trying to do a really bad Kinnock impression. Mm. Okay.
2: Who who is the Labour leader these days? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I'm i only joking I, I actually thought Kia was a good choice when he was elected But I'm not familiar enough with the Labour Party To know how he is viewed, viewed internally But I, I thought someone with his record, his position I thought he was an eminently sensible choice But, you know, you mentioned cut through earlier, Matt And Labour just isn't in my media kind of uh, readings, and I'm not sure if it is in many people's, but is that deliberate? Is that just the state of our media who they want to focus on the issues? Or is it a deliberate Labour Party position just to, you know, lie low and wait for the opposition to drop the ball? Because, you know, if we're honest, we must be expecting them to drop the ball relatively soon.
0: Yeah, I think it's. I heard someone say it the other day, and I, I really can't remember who it was, um, but the impression you get is that Keir Starmer would make a really good Prime Minister, but isn't a fantastic leader of the opposition, whereas Boris Johnson would make an amazing leader of the opposition, but doesn't make that good a Prime Minister. Uh, and I, th- I think that's the, the problem you've got, is that one is a natural campaigner, and you see that in the way the UK government operate. They are constantly on the campaign, they're constantly thinking about winning the next election. So
2: one of, one of the key things that is this week, and I think we've got to focus on,
0: is let, let's
2: take a leaf out of O's Will's book and state that Wales isn't England and bring our discussions back back to Wales. So have, have we got any
0: letters or questions about uh, where we are, Matt? Or do you want me Absolutely, to pick Absolutely, up- Kerry. Uh, there was a really good one, actually. Um, <clears throat> uh, and I'll ask our Plagued Cymru voice uh, this one first. Should Plaid Cymru take a more reserved approach to campaigning for independence? Mr Mine? (laughs) My God,
1: so much pressure. The idea of being a voice for Plaid Cymru is uh, quite extraordinary. Uh, Well, it's already happened, is not it? I mean, that's, uh, you know, it hasn't been talked about in the same tones since the election. I think it's almost inevitable that, that it won't be the focus of Plaid Cymru's energies in the in the near future but I do think that one thing has changed in Ply Cymru, which is I think that shift from talking about full national status to independence you know that that point at which it was a they were almost shy about talking about it I think that that has now changed for good I think it's a little bit of a shame actually that their independence commission work that they did um, which was not really an independence commission, as we well know, it was a confederalism co- commission. Uh, I, I've, it feels disappointing to me that that work hasn't continued in the same way and finding space to exist or to coexist with the work that Antoniv is leading on behalf of the Welsh Government, because actually, as we've talked about before, um, the, the difference between Plaid Cymru's independence as confederalism and Labour Party's unionism as confederalism is really not that far apart based on everything that I've seen and heard over the last couple of months that the period of reflection and introspection on behalf of Plaid Cymru about what went right and what went wrong in that campaign means that the foregrounding of independence as the key campaign plank as it was during the campaign will disappear quite quickly Um, and actually Uh, I I suspect that's not just Plaid Cymru, but all of the independent supporting parties will probably um, do the same. What do you think, Kerry?
2: Yeah, I I agree with you, Rich. I'm not sure where Plaid are on it. I'm not going to be their their spokesperson. I'm not even going to talk on the Greens. I think think for both parties, the focus is very much on next year's local elections as soon as the, the summer's over, I think we've discussed on the pod before and certainly something i believe is you know to win political success is it's a is at the grassroots level is a community and then council level and i think Plaid will definitely be looking at that i don't think the independent argument is going to be a big player at local uh, government level it's going to be different issues and so for the next year that's what we're going to be looking at and um independence will still be there we'll have polls from various things and people can bemoan the polls but um it, it's not going to be a driving force it, it's not going to be on the big political agenda in wales i think until we head up towards dare i say it the next election but i that's far too far too far ahead
0: yeah on, on the independence point i think i think we everyone agrees really do not it applied approach the Uh, election incorrectly. They they approached an election which was going to be about healthcare and the economy with a constitutional focus to try and win over Labour voters who support independence and even though they did that, over 40% of people who support independence voted for Labour. I don't think that means they have to ignore independence though. I don't think that campaign is over at all. Um, I think actually if you look at the election results, it shows that there is a really strong majority in favour of more powers and more self-determination for Wales, even if it isn't necessarily independence. But they applied, I think, do need, if they are ever to form a government or to, to break into the situation where they can be the largest party of government, do they do need to find a strategy. And, and going back to talking about Sinn Féin, um, like we did earlier Kerry I think that um, the best model applied you can follow if they ever want to win over Labour supporters is not appeal to their desire for independence but to, to appeal for their radicalism and their socialism uh, and to follow the Sinn Féin model in the Irish election where they focused very heavily on housing and healthcare but are not hiding the fact that they also support Irish reunification I think and uh, we, we've talked about this for over a year now. And I think if that is what Clyde had done in the Senate election just gone, they may have done better. But you never know, because I think a lot of people were going to back Drakeford no matter yeah. what.
1: Yeah, I think I've been thinking about this, this Sinn Féin analogy quite a lot, because we talked a lot about that during the election period. Uh, and the more I think about it, the more I fall on the side that you just described, Matt, where I think there was nothing really that they could do on that social justice side. They were never going to out labour the idea of the Labour Party, not necessarily the actions of the Labour Party and government in Wales, but um, the success of Sinn Féin pursuing that kind of policy platform was in opposition to Fine and Fianna Foyle. Neither of which fulfil, you know, fill the same spot as the Labour Party on the political spectrum. They're much more to the right, and so there was there was more oxygen there for Sinn Fein to take up and to use. Those conditions are just not there in Wales, and I think there's a ceiling on the vote in the south, uh, uh, in the former industrial um, heartlands that we've all known about for a long time. But I think what the result this year proved more than anything is how tough that ceiling is, how hard it is, how difficult it will be for Plaid to break through based on their, I think, post-2011 um, strategy, which is to target the South East Wales heartlands. Um, and I think you will see ine- inevitably, particularly given the, sho- the strong showings in second places in um, in rural Wales, you'll see the, the growing prominence of um, those other constituencies outside the southeast to the party in terms of winning constituency seats uh, that's where that's where the opportunity really lies but the local elections as Kerry said actually will be with us in next to no time and you only have to look at in the in the Playa heartlands of the Vrog they're already essentially out campaigning hard on that based on the second homes issue that we touched on earlier so I think you know it's going to be very interesting to see what those issues are elsewhere I'd be surprised if if we see that much that much distance between the objectives of Plaid Cymru and Labour in government um, in the foreseeable future I, because I think the the continuing encroachment on devolution by the UK government is actually going to force them together um, possibly also Jane Dodds as the Liberal Democrat she may may vote with them as a block but as they try and sort of bulwark the devolution settlement or even grow the devolution settlement in the face of um, uh, aggressive anti-devolutionism from Westminster. I think we'll see maybe the the stridency of those debates maybe um, subside a little bit and be replaced by a little bit more constructive collaboration.
0: Should we move on to, I think, one of my favourite questions we got this week, uh, which was actually sent to you, wasn't it, Rich? Which was uh, relating to the 97 disclosures that you mentioned earlier. And this came from a friend of the podcast, Mr. Mar- uh, Dr. Martin Johns, Professor Martin Johns. Professor Martin Johns. Professor Martin He said that, uh, according to the 97 disclosures, Ron Davis pushed hard for the idea of Swansea being the home of the Welsh Parliament. So, and w- he asked, what do we think Wales would be like if it had gone to Swansea? Kerry? Yeah,
2: back at the time, I remember the discussions around Swansea getting the Senate. It would have been something I wasn't totally averse to. I like the idea of having different um, cities that have certain kind of sector responsibilities like you see elsewhere. You know, Australia's got Canberra as the political capital, Sydney, Melbourne as economic drivers. So I, I would have quite happily seen Swansea or somewhere else as the political uh capital for wales and cardiff as the economic driver as it is it may well have continued to be back at the time but um you know this is all in the distant past it was really interesting what came out in some of the some of the notes but i would have quite happily seen swansea as um the location of the senate
0: well i was six uh, when the devolution referendum happened, Kerry, so I don't recall the conversations as thoroughly as you do, um, but I agree with you. I think that a lot of people have talked about the idea of different capitals for different things in Wales, and I, I, I'm, I'm fully supportive of that. I think that's the best way you can see growth in other regions of Wales, and I, I think even though it was rejected at the time, I can't see it being much much of a strong argument against really seeing things move out of Cardiff. Which, Well, well, it's interesting if you look at the
1: um, the actual documents that are involved here, it was sort of mostly prompted by the fact that Cardiff was trying to charge too much for the use of City Hall. Um, So, you know, Cardiff's greed pushing the National Assembly to Swansea would have been a very classic Cardiff move from a planning uh, point of view, wouldn't it? Skeptical about the idea of the National Assembly having been relocated anywhere other than Cardiff ultimately, because the world has a variety of countries where the parliament is located away from the major conurbations. And those places where the parliament ultimately ends up being located end up being pretty um, unspectacular. Now I'm losing listeners in Swansea every second I talk about this, so I've got to be super careful. cardiff kind of was, was the obvious choice. Um, and I, I'm not sure that we're, you know other alternatives were that serious, uh, ultimately, in terms of consideration. Um, Do you not think we should
0: have the metropolis of Macuntleth? <laughs> you know, a brand new city forged in mid Wales to have the seat of Welsh e- power? Equidistant from
1: Carnarvon to Cardiff, yeah, somewhere in the middle of nowhere, like Stalittle or... Um, yeah, that, uh, that would have been very geographically sat- satisfying. But um, uh, I think you, you cannot... Resist the fact that Cardiff, you know, at the time that the, the Parliament, the Senate was being built, Cardiff was the the only city, I think, maybe, or Swansea had only recently become a city. No, when did Swansea become a
0: city? It was a, it was a furious ago. Swansea listeners shouting the date. No,
1: I, I don't know. I only uh, know uh, it because it was referred to in Twin Town. Um, uh, that the difference between what is it, the triangle flags and the square flags on the uh, on the corner posts? Is that something like that?
0: Isn't that the FA Cup win, actually, Rich, rather than... 1969. Uh, it became oh, a city. Um, it, what's it, what's, friends,
2: it, what's in it, Google. I think you're thinking of Newport. Newport is a relatively new city, Rich. You've got to remember Cardiff voted no for um, devolution and Swansea voted yes. So I, I think, despite what Rich has said, I think that's a pretty strong case. There's an aspect where you want to give it to a, an area that wanted it. And I do think certainly to avoid some of the criticisms which are creeping into uh wales now and which we see in other parts of the world you know it is an imbalanced country with the southeast having an awful lot and um the senate is a, is for devolution has been a big economic driver i think for cardiff and wherever it had been placed i think it would have been an economic driver and it, it would have been a useful uh tool to to have a bit of rebalancing in that regard but cardiff is the capital it was always going to be favorite but i don't think swansea was too far off the mix despite what um various civil servants put
0: to tony blair at the time rich the part two of that question was also very interesting which is what would wales be like now if ron davis had become first minister do you have any thoughts on that
1: one of the great what-ifs of devolution isn't it because you know you think about it in the short term what would have happened what i think it's very clear that the first few years of Welsh devolution would have been far less rocky they would have been far more energized but if we hadn't had uh Alan Michael would we then have had not have had Rod- Rodri Morgan and uh without Rodri Morgan would we not have had the one Wales agreement which then pushed us into primary law-making powers and and so I think I think it's possible we might have seen a bit more stagnation uh, actually I think you know that the there was almost a sense of creative self destruction about that period when Alan, Alan Michael was first secretary that kind of prompted that kind of catalyzed the subsequent development of the Senedd. um what do you think Matt I mean you 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 you,
2: you, you I, I you were about eight. You
1: were, you were in, you were, yeah, you come to the end of primary school at this point, so you must have been really, you know, kind of a keen observer of the times. What was the
0: year? 99. I was... Oh, come on. Seven. <laughs> seven. Alan Michael and his attitude towards coalition building, which I appreciate is not something that a lot of Labour people are particularly fond of, generally, um, nearly, you know, nearly sank the Senes before it even started we'll never know, really, whether he, whether Ron Davis would have been sensible enough to form a coalition with the Liberal Democrats. I do think that Roderick Morgan would have always ended up first minister, though. I I think that was inevitable, yeah. Force of nature. I I think that um, whether he would have the reputation he does now, again, we'll never know, because I think a lot of the reputation that Rodri has is as a consequence of his ability to steady the ship and to make it go from strength to strength. He wasn't an amazing election winner, necessarily. He, he was, you know, in 2007, we had our lowest ever score. It's the reason we had to form the, the One Wales Agreement. But he was an amazing governor of, of Wales, and he, he, he kept it on its
2: feet. I think we've got to move on from the what-ifs and things, gents, because that, that 2007 election could open up the biggest what-if about the Rainbow Coalition and where Wales would be. But uh, I, I, for one, would have liked to have seen Ron Davis as a, a First Minister uh, and where that would have gone. You know, that is a big what-if and, uh, you know, one we can talk about at length.
1: Yeah, can I can I just float this while we're talking about this stuff from ninety seven? I think it's really interesting to see... Some of that stuff in black and white that we've we've talked about for years I mean it's been public knowledge for years quite how dismissive um, the UK government was about the status of the Welsh Assembly uh, uh, certainly when held up against the Scottish Parliament. Um, but what did you read into the uh, the proposal for a royal snub of the Welsh Assembly in 1999? Um, particularly in light of the recent polling on behalf of the Western Mail that shows what a deeply pro-monarchy country Wales is?
2: Polls seem to be a thing in Wales, don't they? But people like them if they say what you want um, and they disagree with them if they say what you don't. I thought Martin Shipton was really good uh, this week when he chastised people criticising the Prince William uh, poll, but quite happily to laud the independence polls from the same publication. But uh, I, I'm one of the I firmly in a Republican camp, and I, I find that poll quite disappointing on a number of levels. It it's a Wales that just doesn't resonate with me. I've got quite a lot of family who are royalist and things, but it's just not apparent in my life. And I'm surprised that Wales is so from that poll. There's no reason to doubt it. Um, so heavily wedded to the idea of the continuation of the royal family and that kind of archaic investiture procedure so quite disappointing really.
0: Darwin Jones said that didn't he I think he said something along the lines of I could envisage uh, an independent Welsh state but I think you'd have a much harder job having a, a Welsh Republic. Um, I I think he's probably right. I think even if you look at the independence campaigns in Scotland, they still wanted to keep the Queen as the head of state. Republicans have to sort of accept that it's probably not going to be in our favour for for some time. I think the Queen is just so popular in general. She's she's viewed by a lot of people as a a figure of strength. And most people have lived with her as the only monarch they've ever known in Britain. And mm-hmm. I think that she she's seen as part of the state, part of the very nature of, of the place. You know, and I think it also helps, you know, this is 94-year-old great-grandmother. I don't think people have much desire to kick her out of her house. But I I think that that may change with different generations. But with the popularity of people like William and his kids, I I don't really see it being a bit campaign. of a campaign. The thing, the thing that disappoints me on it, for me it's wider
2: than just the royal family and the investiture and Prince William, whether you like them or not. It, it's the principles behind it. It's around that inherited, the hereditary aspect of it. And that's just not in our royal family. We've still got an element of government which is managed or has an element of hereditary peerage in that. And, you know, th- these are really quite, for me, wide principles on what kind of state we want to be and that kind of idea of hereditary privilege and that kind of role in office and the state is just total anathema and it shouldn't just be looked at oh this would be a lovely occasion I think we've got some high profile Welsh nationalists who are all for the occasion and what it will bring and I can understand that but it does trickle down into some really fundamental principles about the society we want, how we're governed and that's what I find disappointing it, it for me it's a although it's not being asked it's an indicative support for that aspect like that hereditary aspect of the the Lords is a confirmation from that poll in a very tenuous link but that's what I make from it.
1: Yeah, very quickly, just to kind of follow up the stuff from 97 as well. I mean, one of the things that's quite telling about that, that, that release of paperwork that came out was um, the list of things that the Blair government prioritised and the list of things that were on its to-do list that it left until, well, it kind of put on the back burner. What was really surprising to me reading through it was how much they were talking about English devolution um throughout that whole document or through that whole raft of documents that were published but because they didn't choose to do anything about it as their top priority when they came into office in 97 then u- ultimately you know that the, there is a window for any government to get something major done within your first couple of years they prioritized wales and scotland you know the, the list of things that were on their back burner list were english devolution p r for european elections and p r for Westminster elections, and I think it's quite telling now that we're where are we here we are twenty five years later you think about what may have been transformational for the united Kingdom wouldn't it be interesting if instead of prioritizing Welsh and Scottish devolution they'd managed to prioritize p r for Westminster elections in after nineteen ninety seven Imagine how different how different uh, the United Kingdom would be if there was genuine PR like STV or Westminster.
0: That would have been a really interesting alternate United Kingdom. can't help but uh, agree with you, Rich. I think if we've had a few guests on have said really that what Labour should have done in '97. I think it's Kevin David and Daryl Lee Worthy have both come on and said really they should have just prioritize pr and actually we should prioritize pr now before we do any more constitutional change we should just focus on sorting the electoral system out something that having david is again actually pushing um mm. very very heavily at the moment all cre- all power to them we have a couple more questions which one do you want to do do you want to do alistan or do you want to just move on to protection? T- tell us a little bit about alistan morgan uh alistan um, well obviously we paid tribute a little bit um after one of our previous episodes to you know, a bit of a political hero of mine absolute giant of the Welsh Labour movement I don't I, I, without him and his campaigning I don't think we'd have the Senev really um, he sacrificed his opportunity to go back into Parliament really to, to run the Yes for Wales campaign in, in, in 79 uh, and I know that he's been a huge and very important influence on, on many members of the modern Welsh Labour Party and pretty much every member of Labour for Independent Wales. And I think that his suggestion that he had a few years ago of, of Dominion status for Wales, although it sounded a bit out there uh, five years ago, is now taken more and more seriously. And you know, as we always like to do on this on this part is to tell everybody about really interesting. Uh, other bits of welsh media martin Shipton did a fantastic podcast with us uh, a couple of years ago which i think i will recommend to absolutely everybody to go and listen to because the man was incredible funny uh charming hugely intelligent and a massive massive loss to uh to welsh politics yeah we'll
1: put the, we'll put a link to that um that podcast in the show notes it, it seems to me that the what did seem quite a wacky idea you know the idea of dominion status you know it sounds like something from another era but it, it is coherent and you know you can see it very much in the thinking of carwin jones in the way that he's looking to um position wales um in the uk context in the future so um yes uh completely echo echo your words there
2: i only knew knew him relatively recently but was aware of his role in the devolution campaign in the 70s but what, what I was struck by in one of the obituaries I read that he was actually quite important and implied at the start of his political career which which threw me. When I when I read that I couldn't, I don't know why he went from place, I think he was due to succeed um, Gwynvor Evans as president but then he was a Labour Party member and candidate, what why was that?
0: You know, I think it was his belief that Plaid were not going to win elections and he thought that the best way to change Wales was to, to, to be part of the Labour Party. And I know people make that decision absolutely every day. Who am I to say whether they are right or wrong? That I think that a lot, of, a lot of progressives in Wales have always felt that way, that the best way to change Wales is through the Labour Party. And I think that Ellistan felt much the same. I don't, think funda- I don't think it fundamentally cha- represented a change in his values, did
1: it, Matt? No, I don't think so.
2: Sorry, chat. I was just the Welsh historian
0: in me. I, I'll chase up Martin Johns a little bit later. <laughs> we should probably end with a bit of a look forward then, shouldn't we? Harry, what are your predictions for this summer and for when the Senate and Westminster return in September?
2: Well, I, I haven't really got much, for, much further forward than the Lions series, to be honest, Matt, and uh, I don't want to start that argument with uh, Rich again. Um, in, ter- in terms of the summer, I think it is, it's going to be a long, hot summer, but we, we can take the circle back to our, our opening of the pod on where the governments are. I, I can't see anything really upsetting any of the apple carts. I think that the big-ticket items we've discussed tonight and in previous pods will continue... Um, and it's just going to be people will be having a quiet summer seeing where the pandemic takes us That that is still something we haven't talked about tonight but it is the overriding, overriding driver of all things in all nations at the moment rightly so and we'll see where we are post summer with that and whether we are moving back towards normal or whether the variance and the pandemic continues both across the world and in the uk
1: over to you matt what do you think are you feeling um positive or negative about
0: the uh, future of the country over the I, summer I, I don't think we'll see a huge amount of of change to be perfectly honest i think that um the bay is forming quite a nice majority consensus really as you said between labor implied i think they basically agree on pretty much everything So I I think that in terms of uh, how they approach coronavirus specifically, um, I I think there's not going to be a huge amount of of disagreement. I think they'll end up in a situation where Plaid try and create the impression they oppose the government, but they broadly agree with the government Was the Conservative Party, broadly disagree with the Welsh Government, and try and make them follow a model which is more for nation approach I think that the one big thing, and I agree with Kerry, it will be coronavirus-related, is now this, uh, this problem with waiting lists. The statistic that came out a few days ago, which showed that something like 19% of the Welsh population is on a waiting list of some kind, I think that situation is only going to get worse without serious, serious investment and focus. Uh, and I think that's a massive, massive test for the new health minister, Lynne Morgan. So I think that is the one thing to really, really keep an eye on. in the, In the... The first few months of, of the senate and what about you rich
1: I, I agree i think d- domestic politics within wales looks pretty settled um uh, and the welsh government is going to plow its own steady furrow um with um you know i think with with plenty of scope there to collaborate with parties not just i think uh, i think i've been pleasantly surprised by how many of the new conservative intake have been willing to engage in, in in very constructive ways with uh, an awful lot of the senate's work in a way that you know w- we really do feel that some of those poisonous elements that came from the previous senate you know that that's really been flushed away now and we are looking at a much more constructive uh, senate i'm the, the one thing that i would say is that i'm really worried about the pandemic I think that particularly across the border in England I think the relaxation the sharp relaxation in regulations and the kind of slightly more febrile um, debates about civil liberties and um, uh, responsibilities uh, is going to create a lot of problems and we're already seeing you know the, the numbers of cases of coronavirus across the border are skyrocketing right now and I wonder what the uh, for how long the Welsh Government can maintain its slightly more successful more successful management of the pandemic in Wales. But looking forward to the next, to September, I think one of the interesting things that we're going to see more of is what happens when the UK Government legislates more in terms of trade, in terms of environmental policy, in terms of food policy, in ways that cross-cut across the devolveds. Um, we're not going to see harmonious relationship coming out of that. Um, and what happens when that happens? I think that's going to be the big challenge. Obviously, COVID aside, which is the biggest challenge, but I think the big challenge coming forward is what happens when the aggressive United Kingdom government, anti-devolutionary stuff really kind of starts, its, um, starts pushing forward. And I hope that, that the discourse that we have within Wales at that time is is better than whose flag is bigger than whose, um, because that's a, ultimately just a massive distraction.
0: And on that cheery flag-related note...
2: <laughs> to be honest uh, with you, I, I found out today that the flag for Breckenshire is a yellow background with a great big blue bat. So that's Yeah, I gonna saw be that, the, that. That's going to be the biggest flag going
0: soon. I have a guy by, who lives by me who has a massive flagpole and will fly a variation of the dry uh, the flag of Glyndor, the Prince of Wales standard, the Union flag and a big yellow smiley face. And I really wanted to talk to him because I really <laughs> want to know what motivates those individual flag choices. Thank you both for for for, for chatting inane rubbish with me for, for as long as we have. Uh, if people want to find you on Twitter, Rich, where can they find you? Uh,
1: at Mimosa Cymru, discourse mostly chirpier than it has been this evening.
0: <laughs> Kerry? I am still carrying the Viking. And I am hexter H X T R 101. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard tonight on Herewith, please do not forget to find us on Medium at HerewithBlogCumery, on Facebook at HerewithBlogComery, and on Twitter at Here Ith Blog. Thank you for listening to Herewith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review.